0: Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Maybe. Shh. Services are provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Terms apply. Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio.
2: We, the jury, say that Aaron Burr is not proved to be guilty under this indictment by any evidence submitted to us. We therefore find him not guilty of treason. Welcome to Criminalia and the first episode of our new season, The Treasonists. I'm Maria Tremarki.
0: And I'm Holly Fry. Aaron Burr was the third vice president of the United States, but is probably more famous for his involvement in two of the most sensational events of his day. On the morning of July 11, 1804, when he was 48 years old and vice president of the United States, Burr fatally shot Alexander Hamilton with a 56 caliber dueling pistol in a duel in Weehawken, New Jersey. Hamilton was a founding father of the United States, a lawyer, scholar, economist, soldier, congressman, and he was the first U.S. Secretary of the Treasury. Three years after that life-defining event, Burr was accused and acquitted of treason against the United States.
2: So what exactly does that mean when a vice president, or actually any United States citizen for that matter, is accused of treason? There are a few things we'll need to be clear about as we kick this season off with an American revolutionist. It's just a little bit of vocabulary, actually. Espionage, sedition, insurrection, and treason.
0: So espionage is an act of spying or using spies for obtaining secret information. Several people generally thought of as traitors in the United States were actually tried for espionage. For instance, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. In June 1953, the Rosenbergs were executed for conspiracy to commit espionage under the U.S. Espionage Act of 1917 in a plot to sell American atomic secrets to the Soviet Union. They were the first U.S. citizens to receive the death penalty in an espionage trial.
2: Sedition refers to conspiring with others to incite rebellion against lawful authority. Insurrection involves actual acts of organized effort that may or may not include violence against the state or its officers. Sedition and insurrection are distinct from treason, which is a violation of a citizen's allegiance to their country by betrayal or by aiding the country's enemies. There is a treason clause written into the United States Constitution, and it's the only crime specifically defined within that document. It's found in Article 3, Section 3, and it defines treason against the United States and its punishments. Treason against the United States, it says, shall consist only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. No person shall be convicted of treason unless the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act or on confession in open court. In Title 18, United States Code Section 2381, and that's according to federal law, today's traders, quote, shall suffer death or shall be imprisoned not less than five years and fined under this title but not less than $10,000 and shall be incapable of holding any office under the United States.
0: Okay, now that that is all cleared up, it is the specific wording in the definition of treason in the Constitution that ultimately one Burr has acquittal. We're going to get into that.
2: It's a little bit early, but we're going to take a break for a word from our sponsor so we can keep the story of Aaron Burr's life all together. When we return, we'll get to know who Aaron Burr was before he decided to levy war against the United States. Allegedly.
0: hey, everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I have been doing my makeup since I was a kid. And I can turn out a look when I need to. But on my day to day, I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. But that also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show or I'm just running to the grocery store. Something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older (laughs) in that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their brilliant eye brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really like go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. And it's just easy as pie, and it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com
2: Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply.
0: Welcome back to Criminalia. Aaron Burr didn't get along with a lot of his peers. At least that's certainly how it seems. But it sounds like he was a great lawyer. Let's run through his accomplishments.
2: So Aaron Burr is actually Aaron Burr Jr., and he was born on February 6, 1756, in Newark, New Jersey. He was the son of Aaron Burr Sr. and Esther Edwards, a prominent New Jersey family. Burr was just two years old and his sister four when their parents died, and the two were raised by a wealthy uncle, their mother's brother.
0: At the age of 16, Aaron graduated from the College of New Jersey, which today we know as Princeton University. He continued his education, studying law at Litchfield Law School in Connecticut. He put his studies on hold and volunteered to fight in the American Revolutionary War, where he served with distinction under General Benedict Arnold and rose to the rank of lieutenant colonel. He resigned in 1779, citing ill health, and then Burr went back to the law. In 1782, he was admitted to the New York State Bar, and he opened what quickly became a bustling law practice in New York City soon thereafter. Right. Benedict Arnold. Of course he studied under, of course he served under Benedict Arnold.
2: And like Benedict Arnold and like George Washington didn't get along. And then like Burr and Washington get along. I'm like, this all is like complete circle here. Like yeah, we're just
0: It's all adding up. Yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, the same people like each other, which is generally what happens. <laughs> so Burr was busy. He was elected to the New York State Assembly in 1784 and served one term. In 1789, he was appointed New York Attorney General by Governor George Clinton, a role he served in until 1791. He was elected to the United States Senate that same year, beating General Philip Schuyler. This is notable, because Schuyler happened to not only be the incumbent, but he was also the father-in-law of Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton and Burr were definitely not friends, but they certainly knew each other. Most stories of the two's relationship are not flattering for either party. Hamilton and Burr differed over a lot of things, but definitely politics. Hamilton was a Federalist, while Burr was politically affiliated with the Democratic-Republican Party, the party that opposed the centralizing policies of Hamilton. Burr's win over Schuyler fueled that long standing rivalry.
0: Burr had hoped to secure the vice presidency in 1796, but he was not elected. The following year, he failed to win re election to the Senate. He lost to Schuyler, and he blamed that loss on Hamilton for ruining his reputation. In the election of 1800, he was on the presidential ticket with Thomas Jefferson. Each man received the same number of electoral votes, a tie in the Electoral College. Under the Electoral College procedures at that time, the electors cast their votes for both candidates without specifically indicating who should be president and who should be vice president. It wasn't until 1804 when the Twelfth Amendment to the United States Constitution was adopted, requiring electors to cast separate ballots for president and vice president. So that vote went to the House of Representatives to decide the outcome, where it was determined that Jefferson would be president with Burr as his vice president. Whether or not it had any influence, and there's no way to be 100% sure, but it was faux Alexander Hamilton who lobbied Congress toward choosing President Jefferson. Jefferson did not trust Burr, and since the election, he had believed that Burr had engaged in secret meetings and dealings in an effort to secure the presidency for himself. He, meaning Jefferson, and other party leaders often marginalized the vice president in his role because of that belief, secret dealings or no secret dealings, Jefferson would continue to be a misery in Burr's life, and we could pretty safely say vice versa.
2: They were swift political enemies, but it was a dinner party that ultimately sparked the infamous Burr-Hamilton duel. Nearing the end of his term as vice president, Burr ran for the governorship of New York. In February of 1804, a New York Republican, Dr. Charles D. Cooper, attended a dinner at which Alexander Hamilton spoke at length and strongly against Burr. He had done that many times, but here's the problem with this particular instance. Cooper then wrote a letter to Philip Schuyler in which he described how Hamilton had insulted Aaron Burr, one of the New York gubernatorial candidates at a private dinner. That letter was also published in the newspaper, the Albany Register. So, did Hamilton intend for the things he said to be relayed in a published letter? Maybe, maybe not, but it wasn't the first time Hamilton had spoken about Burr in the press. It was once printed in a New York newspaper that Hamilton, quote, looked upon Burr to be a dangerous man, and one who ought not to be trusted with the reins of government. The letter hindered Burr's bid for New York governorship, or at least Burr felt that way, and he lost by a large margin to Morgan Lewis.
0: It was when he confronted Hamilton about his slanderous words that Burr challenged his longtime rival to a duel. Duels at this point were illegal in both New York and New Jersey, but the penalties were way less severe in New Jersey, so they chose Weehawken. Weehawken, New Jersey, is just over the Hudson River from New York City. Today, the Lincoln Tunnel, which is just about a mile and a half long, connects Weehawken with Midtown Manhattan. There are conflicting accounts about what exactly happened during this duel, but the facts remain these. Each man fired one shot, Burr was left unhurt, and Hamilton, fatally wounded, died the next day. While Burr was indicted for murder in both the states of New York and New Jersey, he returned to Washington, D.C. and resumed his VP duties presiding over the Senate. He finished his vice presidency, safe from prosecution, and the indictments in this case never reached trial.
2: Burr's political achievements are largely overshadowed by his duel with Hamilton. Many things, really, about Burr's life seem to be overshadowed by that event. Except maybe the treason. In late November of 1806, President Jefferson issued a proclamation stating that a traitorous conspiracy had been uncovered, though he didn't mention any names at that time. He called on, quote, all persons whatsoever engaged or concerned in the same to cease all further proceedings therein, as they will answer the contrary at their peril.
0: In response, the House of Representatives requested that Jefferson present evidence to support his claims. Instead, on January 22, 1807, Jefferson pronounced Burr as guilty of treason, this time naming names. And he stated that Aaron Burr was a traitor whose, quote, guilt is placed beyond all question. Jefferson's public declaration of Burr's guilt before there had even been an arrest or indictment was, of course, controversial. In response, former President John Adams, for instance, wrote that even if Burr's, quote, guilt is as clear as the noonday sun, the first magistrate ought not to have pronounced it so before a jury had tried him. Here's how it began.
2: After his rival's death and the end of his vice presidency, Burr's interest lay with the country's newly acquired territory and the land around the United States, too. Borders were disputed and the land was Perceived as being unsettled, though that ignored indigenous populations already living there. He believed with a small but well-armed military, he could take territory for himself. But Burr knew he couldn't go it alone and brought in General James Wilkinson of the United States Army. Wilkinson and Burr had been friends since serving in the Revolutionary War. Burr had also convinced President Jefferson to name his buddy as governor of the new northern Louisiana.
0: A few months after his vice presidency ended, Burr traveled west, on a reconnaissance mission of sorts, you could call it, along with a visit to Wilkinson. Together, expecting, or at least hoping, war to break out between the United States and Spain over boundary disputes, Wilkinson and Burr planned an invasion of Mexico, which was part of the Spanish Empire, in order to establish their own independent government there. They may the record is inconclusive on this part, they may have also discussed a plan to incite a secessionist movement in the West, planning for that group to join Mexico. It's also been speculated that the plan could have been to provoke war with Spain to create an independent Mexico, or to perhaps separate the Trans-Allegheny region from the United States, or maybe just simply to see if there was a fortune to be made.
2: Burr did try to raise a small army on the American frontier, and by the time he returned to Washington, D.C. that November, he had numerous supporters, including former U.S. Senator Jonathan Dayton and members of the Mexico Society, which was a group of New Orleans businessmen who favored annexation of Mexican land in the West.
0: Burr assumed Wilkinson would be able to both control the land and a military force. In August of 1804, Burr contacted Britain's minister to the United States, a man named Anthony Mary. He offered to help Britain take a piece of Western territory from the United States. In return, Burr wanted money, and he wanted a force to carry out this conquest. Mary was immediately in touch with his contacts in Britain, detailing that Burr had offered to, quote, lend his assistant to his majesty's government in any manner in which they may think fit to employ him particularly in endeavoring to effect a separation of the western part of the United States from that which lies between the Atlantic and the mountains. He continued, Mr. Burr has mentioned to me that the inhabitants of Louisiana, the lands recently purchased from France, seem determined to render themselves independent of the United States and the execution of their design is only delayed by the difficulty of obtaining previously an assurance of protection and assistance from some foreign power. It is clear that Mr. Burr means to endeavor to be the instrument for effecting such a connection.
2: Making his move, Burr sent a coded letter to Wilkinson outlining his next plan. I have at length obtained funds, it included, and have actually commenced. The letter would become known as the cipher letter, and the document figured prominently at Burr's treason trial. Both the prosecution and the defense used the cipher letter to try and prove their case.
0: Wilkinson, though, believed that the plan was going to fail, and he betrayed Burr. Rumors about Burr's plans had begun to circulate and had even been published in newspapers. One Philadelphia paper speculated that Burr would soon be, quote, at the head of a revolutionary party. It also reported that he planned to, quote, engage in the reduction of Mexico, with the aid of, quote, British ships and forces. The persistent rumors made President Jefferson increasingly suspicious, and then, on October 9th, Wilkinson sent a letter to Jefferson outlining the conspiracy. He did not name Burr, but stated that there was a, quote, deep, dark, wicked, and widespread conspiracy afoot. In an interesting and somewhat twisty side note, it turns out that Wilkinson was in the pocket of the Spanish government for many years. It's that old, when you accuse people of things, it's because you are doing it. You're doing it yourself.
2: (laughs) Oh, these two. So we're going to take a break for a word from our sponsor now. And when we're back, we will be talking about Burr's arrest, his indictment, and finally his trial.
0: Welcome back to Criminalia. This is it, the Burr Conspiracy. So let's untangle what happened. Now
2: on the move, Burr's first stop was Blennerhassett's Island on the Ohio River, where he intended on rallying his forces. Harmon Blennerhassett, a wealthy Irish aristocrat, and his wife Margaret constructed their estate on the island in 1798. They allowed their island to become headquarters for Burr's military expedition or mission or exploit, whatever we should be calling it at this point, since they had met him along the river during his early trips west.
0: On December 9, 1806, authorities struck their first blow against his plan. Ohio militiamen captured most of Burr's boats and supplies at a Marietta boatyard. Two days later, the militia raided Blennerhassett's island, but most of the men had already left.
2: The end, though, came at Bayou Pierre, just 30 miles outside of New Orleans, when Burr saw a headline in a New Orleans newspaper announcing a reward for his capture. The paper also had printed in full a translation of the coded letter Burr had sent to Wilkinson. He surrendered to authorities at Bayou Pierre and was arraigned before a grand jury. He and his supporters insisted they had no intention of attacking U.S. territory, and the jury failed to return an indictment, so he went free.
0: Next for Burr was travel down the Mississippi River on nine longboats, along with about 60 men. And that is when he learned that he might be assassinated if he went to New Orleans. While making his way deep into the Mississippi Territory, soldiers from Fort Stoddard, Louisiana Territory, captured Burr, who was considered a fugitive at that point. They captured him on the morning of February 19, 1807, on a muddy road near the hamlet of Wakefield.
2: On June 24, 1807, a grand jury indicted Burr for treason for levying war against the United States, an act which was said to have taken place on December 10, 1806, on Blennerhassett's Island. Burr was also indicted for high misdemeanor for organizing a military expedition against Spain in Mexico in violation of the Neutrality Act of 1794. He was tried separately on the two charges.
0: Despite the weakness of the evidence against him, his case went to trial, and it began on August 3, 1807. Had he been found guilty of treason, the penalty would be death. His trial, or the Burr conspiracy as it came to be known, was held in Richmond, Virginia. Why Virginia? Because the alleged overt act of treason had taken place on Blennerhassett Island, a small spot of land that was, at the time, part of Virginia.
2: John Marshall, Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, sat as circuit judge. The defense attorneys included Edmund Randolph and Luther Martin, both former delegates to the Constitutional Convention. Jefferson himself led the prosecution from the White House, or micromanaged it, it would seem. Attorneys George Hay and William Wirt, who would go on to become the longest serving attorney general in United States history, rounded out the prosecution.
0: At one point during the proceedings, Martin denounced President Jefferson for behaving like, quote, a king of Great Britain, and for unleashing, quote, the dogs of war, the hellhounds of persecution against an innocent man for personal reasons. Jefferson responded by insinuating that Martin was a co-conspirator of Burr and should be prosecuted for, quote, misprision, that would be concealment of treason, at least. He was not. On the prosecution side, the National Endowment for the Humanities has a great description of Wirt engaged in the courtroom. They refer to his scathing portrayal of Burr as the serpent in the garden of Republican virtue as the, quote, rhetorical high point in the trial.
2: The prosecution lined up more than 140 witnesses. Jefferson had sent prosecutors blank pardons, quote, to be filled up at your discretion should any of the other offenders be willing to testify against Burr. But after several testified to Burr's, quote, evil intention. Burr's lawyers objected to any witnesses who weren't offering any evidence regarding actual overt acts of treason. Chief Justice Marshall ruled in favor, arguing that only witnesses who could testify about an overt act of levying war could take the stand. He instructed the jury that it had to confine its decision to testimony that an act of war against the United States had been conducted on Blennerhassett's island. We quote, No testimony relative to the conduct or declarations of the prisoner elsewhere and subsequent to the transaction on Blennerhassett's island can be admitted, because such testimony, being in its nature merely corroborative and incompetent to prove the overt act in itself, is irrelevant until there be proof of the overt act by two witnesses. This opinion does not comprehend the proof by two witnesses that the meeting on Blennerhassett's island was procured by the prisoner.
0: Here's what happened on that day on Blennerhassett's Island. There had been an uneventful, but armed, standoff between some of Burr's men and the Virginia State Militia. On December 10, 1806, 30 of Burr's supporters had assembled with supplies and a few boats. The men were armed, but reportedly they had mostly hunting rifles, not military muskets. They spent time on target practice and they prepared ammunition for the rifles. The island was the one and only location where the government claimed that Burr was planning that overt act of treason. But he wasn't even there that day. Burr was 100 miles away from events on Blennerhassett's island on December 10th, and that was damaging testimony for the prosecution.
2: Chief Justice Marshall issued a subpoena to President Jefferson to deliver documents that Burr had requested to prepare his defense, including... War Department orders and copies of the letter and other papers sent to Jefferson by General James Wilkinson. Jefferson supplied only a small number of letters to the court, and he never acknowledged the subpoena, or the second one that he received later that summer. As to the overt acts, Jefferson wrote, were not the bundle of letters of information in Attorney General Caesar Rodney's hands. The letters and facts published in local newspapers Burr's flight?" And the universal belief or rumor of his guilt. Probable ground for presuming overt acts to have taken place.
0: Jefferson didn't like Burr. You need facts? <laughs> That's <pretty> apparent. <laughs> Are the rumors not enough? But he did not get along with Marshall either. Marshall took a nationalist view of the Constitution, and he focused on strong central government. Jefferson was an agrarian. Jefferson also believed the chief justice stole a seat on the Supreme Court through lame duck appointments. So let's just say there was friction here.
2: Absolutely. Whether he had or had not plotted to take United States and Spanish territories in Louisiana and Mexico to establish an independent republic, Burr was acquitted for lack of evidence, a verdict many historians attribute to Marshall's strict instructions to the jury to take strict and narrow interpretation of the Constitution's treason clause. Burr's team spent three days arguing this very thing, that to be guilty of treason, the accused must have committed an overt act in a war testified to by two witnesses and committed within the district of the trial. Because Burr's actions did not meet that definition, he had to be acquitted. The jury found him, quote, not guilty by the evidence presented. Separately, Burr was also acquitted on his high misdemeanor charge.
0: Jefferson, in frustration and anger at that verdict, wanted the House of Representatives to bring an impeachment charge against Chief Justice Marshall. Jefferson, though, did not get his way on that one.
2: After his acquittal, Burr was not guilty, but found he'd lost in the court of public opinion. He was burned in effigy. With resources drained, Burr left the United States to live as an expat in Europe, but not permanently. He did return to the United States and in 1812 resumed practicing law in New York City. In his final years, he did suffer multiple strokes that left him partially paralyzed, and he died on September 14, 1836, at the age of 80, while in the care of a cousin at Port Richmond, Staten Island in New York. So, this season of The Treasonists and the Traitors, what shall we call our cocktail situation?
0: I'm calling this the perfidy pour. I just felt alliterative and I like that word. It's fun to say. Sometimes. (laughs) The word is fun to say. (laughs) And it's germane to our theme of people not trusting one another. So, we are living in very interesting and troubling times. And I think we keep talking about many news things. And even just when people are chatting amongst themselves or on social, it's like unprecedented the things we're going through. Some of them, yes. But listen, when you read this story Mm -hmm. or you hear this story, it's like, oh, well, actually, um, a lot of these things were going on from the beginning of our country's existence. Exactly.
2: It's a little bit hard to escape from the news and the show. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) It's all here. I couldn't help but think about that a lot as I was preparing this first perfidy pour. I wanted to do something that was reminiscent of drinks that may have been consumed around this time. We talked about before how like a hard cider would be very popular during that time, often with another spirit added. So I made a, a little cocktail called Same As It Ever Was. Hopefully you still have some hard cider from the last time we did it, which is not that long ago. It has an interesting flavor, and I'll tell you what happened when I made it. You might laugh at me, and that's fine. (laughs) You are going to take one ounce of dark rum. I did a dark spiced rum for this. Delicious. One ounce of orgeat, or you could use another almond syrup if you Mm -hmm. have that on hand. Five ounces of apple cider. I made sure that the dark rum and the orgeat were combined together completely before pouring that hard cider over it, because the hard cider has some bubbliness to it. And then I hit it with just a dash or two of Angostura bitters. And this is one of those drinks that I sipped it and went, was this a horrible mistake? (laughs) And then I stirred it a little bit and went, is this a horrible mistake? And then I took a third sip and went, it is not a horrible mistake at all. Now (laughs) it just got good. I needed to stir it a little bit more and combine it, because if you just let it sit on top of each other, sometimes that's a fun way to experience a drink. This is not one of those. You want to combine them.
2: I would like to think that along the way, Aaron Burr was like, is this a horrible mistake?
0: I'm doing <laughs> like, it. <it's> like... <laughs> I love a little almond flavor. The thing that's interesting is that the cider and the dark rum have so much flavor of their own that they bring to the party that the orgea, uh, you don't get that almond flavor initially. Like It took mm-hmm. a couple sips before my tongue was like, that's almond and it's delicious. And then it was very yummy. That is the same as it ever was. <laughs> Because that's how I'm feeling today. This is a very easy one to make a mocktail out of. Instead of dark rum, we're going to do that thing we do where we sub out a tea. I would do a tea with some spice to it. I would do like a tea that's intended to make chai here. And then do that with a non-alcoholic apple cider, especially a sparkling. Use your orja. You can still do the bitters if you are a person that doesn't even do bitters because you want no drops of alcohol at all since it has a tiny, minuscule amount in it. You could skip those. It's fine. It's still going to be really interesting, I think, and very yummy. It's, mm-hmm. What's interesting is that it's not too sweet at all. I tend to like a sweet drink, but I know not everyone does. If you do like a sweet drink or you abhor a sweet drink, the easy fix to make here is to dial that orgeat amount up or down. When I first did it, I only put in a half ounce. That was not enough Mm -hmm. for my palate, and it just was a little too... Something wasn't working in terms of the balance. So I added a little bit more, and that's how we landed here. But if you would like it even sweeter, you could put more in. Uh, It also depends on the sweetness of the apple cider you're using. Some are much, much sweeter than others, especially once you get into hard cider. They have very different flavor profiles brand to brand. You can calibrate based on that. So, yes, same as it ever was. I hope we all have some sense of hope that our country has gotten through a lot of weird times before, and hopefully we will manage this again. It's hard to see that at some moments, but that's my hope. If this story gives you any shred of hope whatsoever, I will consider it a wild runaway success. And you can enjoy a little sip of a cocktail while you contemplate. We are so excited to be talking about treason this season. And we hope you will join us again next week because we have more wild tales of behavior. Criminalia is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.